I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Hey there, Prakatan. In today's episode, we're going to be talking with Anya Leonard of classicalwisdom.com. There are a lot of references and things noted in this episode that I'm going to link to in the show notes. So if you're not someone who usually checks the show notes, you should make time to actually check them for this episode. And if you're someone who's like, what are show notes? You've really been missing out because there's always a description and a collection of links below every episode in whatever podcast podcast player you're using to listen to this podcast. So check the show notes of this episode and, you know, in the future, check them in general. There's useful stuff down there. But for now, here is my conversation with Anya Leonard of classicalwisdom.com. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it 
it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often, so stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Hey there, Prakaptan. Welcome back. Today, I am joined by Anya Leonard, who is the brain behind classicalwisdom.com and classical kids, which I thought maybe you would call wise wise kids or wise guys or something, but I like classical kids better. Anya, hi. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I am a big fan of everything you do. In fact, I'm, I'm actually just a big fan of you. You are a fun, bubbly, friendly person, and you help me not look like such a dummy in some of the uh, Plato's Academy events because you're often the host while I'm behind the scene pushing buttons and you make my life a lot easier. When things are going awry, you're good at buying me time, which is nice. So I'm very happy to have you here. And for anyone who doesn't know who Anya is and isn't familiar with her work with Classical Wisdom and how long she's been doing it, I just want to give you an opportunity opportunity on you to talk about classical wisdom as a project, why you do it and what the purpose of it is. Well, yeah, classical wisdom started 10 years ago, so it's it's been going on for a while. And it was originally co-founded uh, with a fellow named Bill Bonner, who runs uh, a large financial publishing house called Agora. Um, and he actually is also the owner of Le Belette, a French publishing house in Paris. And they're one of the few remaining publishing houses that critically translate new texts and publish them because uh, a lot of the other publishing houses, Loeb included, realize that, you know, there's not so much money in it. So uh, trust the French to still be dedicated. Um, and so my initial project was, you know, having studied the classics, having loved ancient philosophy and history to figure out a way to make the classics self-sustainable. Um, and I know there's a lot of wonderful programs that are involved with, you know, universities or state funding and these things, but those can be fickle. <laughs> Politics change, fads come and go. So if there's a way that we can make the classics and sort of the preservation and promotion of the, the knowledge that can come from history and, and philosophy and literature is something that is valuable in and of itself, um, I think that's a sort of the important goal. So that's how it, it kind of started. Um, eventually, I, I very amiably separated with Agora because they do kind of focus on finance and um, classical wisdom kind of wanted to stay true to the sort of classics. So um, I've been running it, yeah, ever since. And uh, about a year and a half ago, we launched on Substack. So that's been kind of an exciting community to be part of. And it's been going strength to strength. We, we really enjoy a wonderful community of people who love classics and history and philosophy. And every chance I get to kind of engage with my audience, I just come away being like, yes, these, there's good people in the world. It's wonderful. What's the benefit of 
of classical wisdom. I mean, you, you're not an academic by training or background, but this seems like a genuine, just an, an interest that you have that you're passionate about. Is that something that's always been the case? Well, okay. So my, my educational background is, is that I'm a Johnny and anybody who knows what a Johnny is knows what that means. And that means I went to a very strange philosophy college called St. John's. They have one in Annapolis and in Santa Fe. And it's a really strange program. You study the classics, you learn ancient Greek, you don't attend lectures. You sit around at a big table and you argue with everybody. Um, and it's kind of a very unique, it's a great books program. So, um, yeah, anybody who kind of knows that world will be, they, they often say to me, oh, yeah, I can tell you're a Johnny. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, but <laughs> what I think is the value, and, and this is an interesting kind of segue because I once was talking to a professor who was like, oh, yeah, Johnny's, you're one of those classicists who just think the classics are the answers to everything. And I said, no, I don't think the classics are the answer to everything. I think it's this amazing toolbox of resources and information and ideas that we have at our disposal. And people are, are operating without knowledge of all this wonderful wisdom that we already have, that people have been asking these questions for thousands of years and have great ideas about these really fundamental questions. And so they're, they're a great resource to have. Um, I actually ended up doing my master's in sociology, so a very different field. Uh, but the love of classics, you know, crops up. And so, um, I, again, most Johnnies will tell you that they, they finish their four-year course in the Great Books program, and then they do something totally random for like 10 years, and then they go back to philosophy and the classics. So um, it's not such an unusual trajectory considering uh, the education I did have. Can you say a little bit more about uh, about the school? How does one become a member of the, because now I'm interested. This sounds like fun to me and I can't be the only person who's going to be hearing this conversation who thinks like, oh, I want to learn more about this. Yeah, well, the St. John's program, there's also a, a graduate program that's very popular, a GI program where you basically do like an accelerated great books program. Um, and that one's very popular as well. I mean, it's really small. It's only about like 300 kids on the campus. It's it's a it's a small college. Um, and it's, you know, there's a lot of really cool people I've gotten to interview over the years who are also Johnnies and, and authors and stuff like that. So it's, it definitely is its own little world, but it's just, a, it's a normal liberal arts college. You know, it just, um, I had finished, I actually went to college and I mean, secondary school in the UK. And, uh, so I kind of wanted something very different. And so, yeah, ended up at St. John's. So what is it like now to have, you mentioned that you have a strong community of classical wisdom, but the truth is that you have almost 60,000 people who are reading your work every month. That's that's one of the largest substacks that exists. I don't know if you know the stats on substack subscriptions, but 60,000 is a very large audience. You're, you're in an elite class of substack writers. What is this like? I mean, are you the only one creating this content? You can't be. That, that seems insane. No, <laughs> no, no. I, I've been working with like, teams of classicists and writers, and I have a managing editor. Um, yeah, you know, I often forget how many people there are. And my husband will remind me, he's like, if we go to like a, a, a football game in America, and he's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're like twice the stadium size. I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, we also have a really big uh, community on Facebook. We've got like over almost 140,000 followers on Facebook and, and the various different social media channels. Um, 
You know what I'm most proud about, though, is how wonderfully international classicalism is. We're read in 178 countries, which just as an international person myself, I love knowing that we're connecting people from around the world in a love of classics and that it's kind of like this shared project of promoting and preserving humanity. And to know that people all over the world are interested in this, uh, I think, is like kind of connects us in a really awesome way. My favorite thing about it is that while everything on this podcast is very related to Stoicism, maybe one relationship removed if we have to talk about Cicero or we have to talk about Plutarch or something, we might get into something that's not Stoicism. But most of the time, it's Stoicism with a mention of cynicism every now and then. But if I'm just looking at the front page of classicalwisdom.com, I've got Cicero, Ovid's dating advice, the conversion of Constantine, how important are dreams and should we pay attention to them, love tips from Lucretius. I mean, it is, and you and I were talking a bit before I hit the record button, people come into philosophy in sometimes through stoicism, but they always come to it through one, or they seem to frequently come to it through one avenue. And they might, as they build their knowledge of that one avenue, think that that's the, maybe be under the impression that that's the only thing that, that's the best option because it's the way they found philosophy. But one of the greatest benefits of classicalwisdom.com is people could come here and learn all kinds of things that are, I mean, it's a smattering it's such a large collection of philosophical content, and it's all excellent, Ani. It's all really good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, well, you know, it's funny because when you first tell somebody, oh, yeah, I do the classics, they think it's going to be this really niche field. Um, but we cover basically like 12,000 BC. Like I try to do like Minoans, Mycenaeans. I mean, and I still like... I love getting involved in the, the Babylonians and the Egyptians because they, they, it's, it's not like history doesn't have those neat delineations. Everybody's sort of influenced. All the first philosophers in Greece had traveled to the East and, and to Egypt and places like that. So, you know, it's always a bit of a continuation. But I like going from there, like all the way potentially to the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire, you know. So we, and then you cover the, the, the territory. I mean, we're going Hadrian's Wall, North Africa, all the way to India. So, you know, you could be talking about Scythians one week, um, Mycenaeans another week, the, the, the Gauls and, you know, Roman, the, the invasion of the Roman Saxons. I mean, they, you, you, there's quite a lot to cover. <laughs> Or you could be talking about Lisa Strata by Aristophanes. Never even heard of this. I assume it's a play. Oh, that's a great play. I mean, that is like a fan favorite. Basically, women all try to band together to stop men from having war by um, just all denying them uh, their husbandly rights. <laughs> sure. The, the thing they want the most, usually, yes. <laughs> So it's, I mean, but it's such a hilarious premise, as you can imagine, and it's very body, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great play. And Aristophanes is actually, you know, even though he's a comedic playwright, he actually gives us such great insight into history. He gets to make fun of people and get away with it. I mean, he's sometimes our primary source on things. Uh, so is a really value, both historical and entertainment-wise, 
uh, with, with studying a whole wide range of, from the classical world. I know you said that it doesn't have really distinct divisions and that it's kind of messy, right? Because there's a lot of things happening at once, and I think that's not the way people think of it when they think about the classics in general or, or history in general. Do you have a favorite portion of what's encompassed within classics? Like, are you someone who's just, yeah, that's the question. I'm not going to try to make it any more complicated. <laughs> well, I'm sure like lots of people would say, oh, you know, you got the golden age of Athens and that's where you've got Plato and Socrates and all those guys and Aristotle and Pericles and Alcibiades. But you said 12,000 BC. That's that's way before any of that. Way before. You know, though, I would say probably the 8th century BC and 7th century BC are some of my favorites um, because I'm a big fan of Sappho. Uh, and I wrote a children's book on Sappho, actually, called The Lost Poetess. I really like the pre-Socratic philosophers. Like, I've, I've been championing that we should rename them because I think it's, you know, a bit, a bit of a slight just saying that all they are is a reference to Socrates. I mean, they are, I like calling them the first philosophers, like Thales of, of Miletus. I mean, I, I, we, we got to bring these guys back. Right, they're like philosophical plot devices. That's, that's what we've reduced them to. <laughs> No, not fair. Not fair. These guys are great. Um, Heraclitus, like there's so many of them. I think actually one of the, the biggest problems they have are just very difficult to pronounce names. They, they just haven't gotten their, their day in the sun, but their ideas, their way of looking at the world. And, you know, as somebody who hasn't gone very niche, I actually love sort of the, I don't know, the messy interdisciplinariness, intersectionality of these guys because their philosophy and science and art, you know, they're, they're all of them at the same time. And when we kind of free ourselves up from our sort of modern classification mode, we, you can kind of come up with these great insights and ideas and revelations when you allow yourself to just see them kind of all mixed together. And I don't mean that in a hippy dippy sort of way. I mean that in a like legit, like math, science, philosophy, all com coming together. Well, that's interesting. So then I have to ask a natural question here, because this show is is usually, as I said, only about stoicism. Do you feel like something is lost when, in general, not any, not any individual in particular, but when an individual dedicates themselves to a single school of philosophy in practice, not as an academic pursuit, but in practice, do you think that there's detriment in doing that? Do you think that being a Stoic, for example, maybe that's a little bit too narrow and you could benefit by being more than just a Stoic? Personally, yes. Of course, there's different strokes for different folks. And some people are going to be um, more rewarded by a niche specialization, by focus, um, by that kind of structure. And I, I would never um, begrudge anybody to follow their own path in that regard. For me personally, like I love Cicero's eclecticism. I love the fact that, you know, you, you have all these different ideas and you pick the right one for you, sometimes at the at this different times of your life and different situations of your life. So again, kind of looking back at it as a toolbox, like maybe your Phillips screwdriver is going to be the most useful one for you and maybe you use it all the time, but there are going to be situations in your life when having some knowledge of different types of philosophies will resound with you at that moment in your life. So um, for me, like I think there's a lot of value in, in skepticism when we kind of face this sort of world of excessive polarization and and this 
notion that we can't really trust what knowledge we're given, like through the media and the ideas, that we are not willing to listen to the other side, like the concepts and ideas of truly keeping an open mind and suspending judgment, something that Epictetus talks about as well, but like is kind of further expanded on with the skeptics is hugely valuable. You know, same thing with like cynicism. There's just so many times in our life where we can go, wow, like, you know what? Epicurus really has some good insight on that. And I needed to hear that right now. So I, I wouldn't, wouldn't want anyone to exclude from their own toolbox knowledge from other philosophers simply because they didn't subscribe to a certain school. Sometimes this knowledge predates Stoicism as well. So um, why not give yourself all the chances? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So other than going to classicalwisdom.com and subscribing and reading all of the great content that's published there, what is a way that someone can do that? I think that when I think of studying the classics, what I think of is, man, that's I got to go to college for that. I, I got to go to school for that and be taught by somebody who really knows their stuff. That can't be the truth anymore, right? The classics have become, even though I feel like they might be at the lowest level of popularity as, they, as they've ever been, which is sad, I think they're at the same time the most accessible that they've ever been. Is that an accurate hunch? Yes, certainly. I mean, we have, one thing I would say for a lot of people is start with the literature, start with the books, um, and, you know, start with Homer, <laughs> just because everybody references Homer. So, but, you know, we have new translations that are coming out all the time that make them more readable than ever. And, you know, Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, and she's recently done the Iliad, they, they're page turners. You know, you sit down and you you're get engaged in these stories um, that kind of enter you into this this other world that I think has great value in just approaching it I think for a lot of people, as you say, like it can be a bit overwhelming. There's so much information that if you don't know one thing, you might think, oh no, like, so what, that's definitely something I try to do at Classical Wisdom is try to make every piece approachable. Um, and, you know, you just got to start chipping away at it. We do have an Essential Greeks course, which I like to um, use as a great foundational course for people. Like, it's you kind of do that, and then you've got like the basic foundations of the, the essential Greeks, and that can help you build on from there. For people who kind of are intimidated, it's a it's a nice starting point. Um, but the reality is, is that when we spend our time like doing the doom scroll, and you come away, and you're just, you know, you've just spent like an hour on your phone. You thought, what did I do? And I, you feel drained. I find that any bit of the classics you read a little bit and you come out of it and you just, you feel like your brain's been fed, you know? You feel like you've interacted with the sublime just by the sheer fact that it survived thousands of years for a reason. It, there's something just humbling and taking you out of your everyday banalities and just reinserting you. Um, like for me, I find that very invigorating. So for, if, I think for a lot of people, they, they feel like they're gonna be intimidated and then they start it and then they go, oh, wait a second. This is more approachable than I thought. This is more enjoyable than I thought. And then they kind of slowly get sucked in. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. 
What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. And what about the people who would say that and I think there's some fairness in this criticism, maybe. I've heard it so frequently that there must be some justification for it, although I don't know what it is. What about the people who would think that there's nothing that the past has to teach us, and as far as the classics are concerned, because it's so far removed and detached from the realities of today? I think one of the criticisms I hear a lot is that it's it's a bunch of dead white, white men. And what do dead white men know about the struggles and difficulties that face a lot of people, uh, regardless of what sex or uh, nationality or race they are today. Do you have a response to that sort of criticism? Uh, sure. I feel like there's two critiques there that maybe require different responses. Yes, please. So, I mean, one thing for sure is when it comes to like the dead white guy category, um, the ancient world is extremely diverse and that kind of categorization doesn't fit. Um, you have all sorts of fantastic characters from all over, uh, from all different backgrounds in the ancient world that, you know, you have Ethiopian and uh, kings in the, in the sequel to the Iliad. Like, you have these amazing characters um, that come from all over. And, you know, we have Roman emperors who, if we're not completely black, we're, we're definitely of color. Like, you have female philosophers, you have female poets. I mean, in many ways, the Bronze Age was much more equal than, than the Classical Age. Like, history is not a straight line. Um, it, even in the ancient Greek world, they, the, their number one most popular myth was of the Amazonian women, like the Scythian uh, horse culture women that ruled. They are the number one depicted images on their vases. Like, so in the ancient world, you know, they held up their female goddesses. They took in um, exotic gods from various countries and cultures. Like Dionysus was not originally Greek. They absorbed the cultures from, from the East and from Egypt and Africa. So it's not diverse. I mean, it's, sorry, it's the opposite. It is very diverse. It's not just um, a monolithic group of people. And sometimes I think just the tragedy that the paint has worn off all the statues has sort of cemented in people's image of this sort of monolithic white guy categorization. Um, when just the reality is, is very far from that. Well, and the Renaissance didn't help with that either, did it? No. <laughs> but, I mean, we know that Aesop was a slave, probably uh, Epictetus was a slave. You know, people would go in and out of slavery all the time. Like, they were dealing 
often with kind of the extremes of human experience uh, that would give them the insight that that so many of these thinkers and philosophers did experience slavery, but also they experienced universal, timeless issues like mourning the death of your family members and loved ones. I mean, Cicero wrote a whole treatise after his daughter died in childbirth. Like, you know, people experienced plague and disease. They experienced war. And so a lot of these fundamental questions are just deeply universal. Um, How do we be better people? How do we be a good friend? You know, how do you be a better member of your community? Uh, How do you... How do we understand our relationship as individuals to our government, our society? Like, there's no reason this belongs as a question to one group of people at one period of time. Like, people all over the world are asking these questions. And these guys came up with some solutions. They're worth reading along with other philosophers, you know. What I love about what you just said is... Because I'm a Stoic and because I spend all my time in this Stoicism space, one of the things that I find really attractive about Stoicism, and this must be true of a lot of other of the ancient philosophies, Greek or otherwise, is that today it seems like we're always trying to find the objective fix to a problem broadly. And it feels like and this feels especially true in Stoicism, that they were instead trying to figure out, or you said how to be a good friend. I think today people think there's one objective way to be a good friend. But I think if you go back and you look at the ancient literature, it's, no, there is a way of thinking and approaching the world that is different for each and every individual. It's highly contextual. And if you can master that way of thinking, you can know how to be a good friend to person A and person B and person C, because of course, being a good friend to different people for different people has to look differently. But today, it doesn't seem like we do that, which to me feels like the biggest travesty of us not thinking like this anymore. Do you have thoughts on that or do you feel the same way sometimes? Well, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're kind of a quick fix culture these days. That we, you know, we want to hack it. Um, there's a lot of insights to these philosophical questions that kind of arise just even in the language. So one thing that I think is always fascinating just to talk about friendship is that the ancient Greeks had many different words for different types of friends. I mean, Aristotle lists out these different types of friendships and how you interact in them is going to be different based on the type of friendship you have. Like your friendship with your long life best friend is a different type of friendship than the friendship you have at work. And even understanding and appreciate those differences is very important. Same with love. You know, they had almost 30 different words for love, like we've got one word and like we use it for our lifelong partner and for donuts. You know what I mean? Like, come on, <laughs> there's got to be a little bit more nuance in Although, that. Although to be fair, to be fair. On uh, yeah, yeah it's, to, to your point, I think one of the biggest elements about studying philosophy and history is just even asking the question in the first place. And I think a lot of people, you know, get sucked up in their daily lives and, and like, I'm no different. Don't, I mean, there's days you wake up and you're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get this stuff ready and I gotta go to the grocery shopping and am I eating enough, you know, vegetables and have I drank enough water and am I getting my steps in and, you know, oh, have I done enough reading? And, you know, we, we get really bogged down with these little questions that we sometimes don't take a step back and just go for a walk and look at trees and think, what, 
is good? <laughs> you know, what, what, is, what makes a good friend? Am I being a good friend? How could I be a better friend? You know? It's also insane to the degree that we're all doing so much. You just name, you know, we're getting our steps in, we're going to work, we're making sure we're staying up with the so, social trends. Or, but at the end of the day, especially when I look back on my days, all I do for a living is this podcast. And sometimes I look back on my day and I'm like, what the hell did I do today that was worth anything if it's not one of the days I'm publishing an episode? I'm just like, what, what did I do? Why wasn't I reading Aristophanes? Why didn't I read that today? But it can feel impossible to make time for something as seemingly arduous and intellectual as I'm going to stop and read Aristophanes. <laughs> do you have any suggestions for people who, I mean, other than the obvious, just choose to do it? Is there something that you've been able to do in your own life? life to kind of shut the screens off a little bit more frequently and spend some deep attention and deep time on the stuff that you think really matters a lot more? I mean, I think that's an excellent question. And, you know, I'm a work in progress like everybody else. I'm not, I mean, uh, I definitely battle with it as well. And, you know, it's frustrating because, you know, you think back to your childhood, you think about to pre- screen times. Like, I actually only had data on my phone a few years ago. And, I, I mean, I can see its effect on my mind. I mean, I can genuinely see it. And I guess I have the advantage of having an eight-year-old daughter who gets annoyed every time I get on my phone. So I literally have somebody going, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, good reason to have children, if for nothing else. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, trying to avoid the screens, we really, when you look at your screen time at the end of the week, I mean, there, you get your answer of how much you use. And I think the important thing to remember, and this wasn't an exact Aristotle quote, it was like kind of um, a rewritten of his words, uh, is that, you know, excellence is a habit. It, you have to change your habits. And it's, you, it's the little daily stuff you do every day. And, you know, I say to my daughter, hey, play your violin only for five minutes every day. Just start. Just And five minutes is an achievable amount of time for anybody to uh, start doing a thing. Like, all right, I'm going to read just five minutes even. But the second you start doing it, you obviously do it for longer. So if, as long as you allot five minutes in your mind, you'll find 20 minutes that you didn't know you had. Yeah, it is funny. It's, it's, it's like a trick you have to play on yourself because when you interact on, not to pick on TikTok in particular, like I'm not trying to make a political statement. It's just the first social media platform that came to mind. There's this immediate gratification that happens with engaging with TikTok as soon as you hit start, right? As, or as soon as you open the app and you start scrolling, you're getting status, you're getting some sort of chemical response that is amazing and it's quick. Whereas playing the violin or reading a book you have to get to the point where something clicks and then you get that dopamine hit or whatever it is. And it is, a lot of people say social media and these sorts of instant gratification things are like an addiction. And until recently, I don't know that I really agreed with that. I thought that was being uh, hubristic. But the older I get and the more difficult it becomes, even for me as a grown person who does care about these things, to spend an hour doing something that doesn't provide instant gratification and to instead choose to spend that time doing something that does, I think it is very much like an addiction. And, it, and it's a difficult one to do anything about because I don't think people view it as one really. Like, I don't think it exists in the DSM as like an actual <laughs> addiction, right, that there's treatment for. Or may, may, maybe it will soon. I think, I think there is, actually. I think there's like clinics in Asia, like Japan and Hong Kong and places like that for kids who uh, have addiction to 
internet. We got to bring that some of that stuff west, maybe. <laughs> yes, I think studying even the ideas of addiction and our how our brains are immediately rewarded and how we can free ourselves from addiction. Those are really another important topic that I also would enjoy speaking about at length, to be honest. Uh, but maybe this that might be a little off um, off the course here. But one of the biggest things I think of is the need to sometimes take a step back and see the forest from the trees. And that's like, I always say, one of the things I love about, say, New Year's Eve and such is I like liminal phases. I like moments of ritual where we step back and we like write down your goals for the year and all that kind of stuff. And we sometimes have to be reminded to do that. Uh, and that and, and that's valuable when we do, in part because when you're viewing how you spend your time, you it's rather than seeing giving up something as like the lack of doing something. It's the opposite way if you think about it as in you're putting instead time in a long-term goal that's more important. I don't know if I'm articulating that very well, but if for instance you say like, yeah, I want to be I want to read some of the original texts of Plato and Aristotle or whatever. And that's going to take me a lot of time. Like I need to devote some time to it. Every time you're looking at TikTok, it's not like, oh, I've got to deny myself that. I'm like, I've got a higher goal, a better goal that's going to make me happier longer term. I struggled with that because I recently, I mean, I recently had to sell it because I moved across the Atlantic, but I had not too prior to that move just acquired the entire 52 volume collection of the great works of Western literature. And I was like, I'm going to read these. And I got to like volume three and I couldn't, I was like, no, this isn't fun. <laughs> this isn't fun. So I don't want to do it. Uh, and it's, it's a severe struggle. This is Mark. And this is Wes. We'd like to tell you about Close Reads, a philosophy podcast where we comment on philosophy texts in real time. We give you the experience of reading very difficult verbiage without you having to actually do that. We cover the big names and the figures you've always wanted to know more about. And share our insights from 15 years running the Partially Examined Life podcast, downloaded over 50 million times. Join us on Close Reads. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Maybe that's actually a good segue to one of the other things that we wanted to talk about today, which is maybe it's too late for us, <laughs> right? Maybe if you're over 20, you're doomed. This is just the reality. But some of us, I my son is coming into the world this April, and it's the first kid I've ever had. So I'm one of the things I'm most eager about, although there's plenty of diapers and less important things to do until I get to this point, is helping them to become like the person I wish every young person was, right? And helping helping kids to be better than my generation and the one immediately prior and the one immediately after seem to be shaping up to be. And you have, I mentioned it at the outset, but you don't just have classicalwisdom.com, you have classicalkids. Is that also, is that classicalkids.com? Uh, well, it's actually classical wisdom kids. I've actually just rebranded it to classical kids. But if you type in classical wisdom kids, it, because I think there was a little confusion for some people that 
what was classical wisdom and what was classical wisdom kids, because it turns out a lot of the lessons apply for both children and adults. <laughs> um, and actually, it's funny that your question is a perfect example of that. And I've been recently preparing for uh, to do a talk at the Plato Academy's next event on philosophy and children. And I was titling my talk on, I don't know, like laying the foundations for learning. And this kind of applies directly to your last sentiment, which is, it's important to remember that we don't have fixed minds. You still can learn. You, you totally can learn. No, it's too late. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. I mean, I have met so many wonderful people over the years who found classics and philosophy late in life and have just a whole new lease on life. Uh, you know, I've actually, my mother has a woman in, in her condo. And when my mother wrote, like, on her Christmas letter, my daughter does, you know, classical wisdom, this woman, Yana, she's like, she has become a full, intense, like, every event, everything. And she's like, oh, that was the best Christmas card I've ever read. It changed my life. This woman's in her 80s. She is thrilled to be introduced to the classics now in her 80s. I have met many people who have done that. And the first step is realizing your mind is still pliable. You, you, you can still grow and learn. And you can take baby steps. You don't have to go straight into reading Aristotle straight. Aristotle is not fun to read straight. He isn't. It's okay to know that. Like, what, what, that's why we do articles, we do events, we, we give different ways to engage with these ideas rather than just sitting down and reading maybe perhaps a boring and not very good translation. We even have a, this anthology as well that's got like uh, extracts from all the important ones so you can kind of get a taste and then see which one you like the best. We have limited time. You don't have to read everything. So for children, I think one of the beauties of kids is that they're okay with the fact that they don't know everything yet. You know, that, that they're okay with being uncomfortable with not being knowledgeable because that's how they learn. That's how we all learn. And I sometimes find it problematic when I meet kids. And I mean, I've, every single kid has said this, mine included. They go, oh, I know. Oh, I know. And you're like, no, you really don't. You really don't know. Um, and so then I start telling the story about Socrates. And his, you know, getting the oracle from Delphi that he's the wisest man and then going around and testing. And he doesn't say, I know that I know nothing. Socrates is a smart guy. He knows that he knows a lot of things. He says, I don't claim to know that which I do not know. So the ability for us to know when we don't know something is absolutely critical. And, you know, there's all sorts of fantastic uh, charts that show this sort of this path of despair, because we always think we're much more knowledgeable than we are in so many topics. And, and this is a common trait that we all have around the world. And then when we realize we don't know, we kind of go to this valley of despair, and then we have to sort of build up our knowledge again. And so I think it's really critical for children to embrace what they don't know, because that's what makes them receptive to learning. And I think as we get older, the more we lose that ability the less we can learn. So when we open our minds again and realize, wait a second, I don't know. Like, it's okay for me to say I don't know. It's all right. Like, I've got to be comfortable with not knowing. And it's when you're reading something that's beyond your level, for instance, the first time you read it, you might not know what's going on, but you just keep reading. And it was Kierkegaard who said, 
he wanted philosophy to be read by, by everybody. And he said, just even if you don't get it, just keep going and then read it again. It's okay if you don't know. Like, we've got to accept that. And when you've got Wikipedia, you don't really spend a lot of time in that valley, right? You get to kind of skate over it. You're like, oh, now I know because I Googled it. Now I have the answer to it. I like what you said about kids not being afraid that they don't know things. I would go as far as to say that they don't know they don't know. They just don't know the feel, the feeling of shame of not knowing. It's not possible for them to be ashamed of not knowing the answer to something because they're in this, at least for some amount of time, I would assume. I'm sure I'm sure this changes, right? The closer they get to teenage years, it probably changes. But they only view everything as this exciting new piece of information that they never heard. And I don't. Th- I would imagine that until they start getting punished for not knowing something, that maybe that doesn't. Maybe we just need to stop punishing our kids for not knowing things, and maybe that love of learning will never stop. Well, that's a good. That's an interesting insight. Um, that. Well, that might take us into the whole structure of education, <laughs> next, the next big topic. For someone without kids, it's an interesting insight. We'll see if it sticks around. Well, um, but to sort of, I guess, come back to what we're trying to do with classical kids is to introduce kids not only to the ideas about how to think about the world, to think critically, to think philosophically. I don't think... Asking a child what makes a good friend is a great question. It's a great conversation to have over dinner, and it's an important one. Um, so I think introducing a lot of these philosophical ideas is it's it's fun. It's fun. Have, their insights are great. Like it's a it's a great project. But um, but from the history and the language and the mythology standpoint, it's a it opens up a key to again a vast wealth of knowledge that even a lot of adults don't realize. And and that's, again, to go back to the toolbox analogy, these are the fundamental tools that up until the 19th century, you could not be considered an educated person if you did not know these classical references. So when you're reading literature and you're going to museums, you will they're so riddled with these classical references that if you don't know them, you're getting, you're not getting to enjoy a whole layer of depth of knowledge. And so I take my daughter to, to a museum and she gets excited because she goes, oh, oh, that's, that's the judgment of Paris. Like she knows what the, the, the paintings are about. And so they're fun stories. It's not that hard to teach, tell, I mean, how many parents here, like, tell me a story, tell me a story. Tell. I can't think of them all. It's great. I've got a whole book of stories I could just tell her. And then later on, she's reading Nietzsche at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> and she's like, yes, of course I know who Apollo and Dionysus is. So maybe the key to people eventually not feeling that that valley you mentioned, that valley of despair, I think maybe the way that we keep that as shallow as possible is to just introduce people at as young an age as possible, these really Hist- I don't want to say historical, I want to say fundamental, just these things to familiarize them with things that will make no sense to them then, but that they can keep in their memory as they age that might help them to feel more comfortable in a museum than they would if they'd never heard that word. And the thing that I thought of when you were saying that was how much of a role Calvin and Hobbes and the adventures of Tintin played in me having a good vocabulary and being able to connect references as I became a teenager and some in my 20s. And I don't think if I hadn't had those large vocabulary words and those historical references that I didn't really fully understand as a kid then, I don't think I could have ever come to appreciate those things I 
learned later. Like they were foundational before they were useful. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And I am a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan, so definitely respect. Um, yeah, no, I think the you can introduce these ideas and it just means that later on in life they're not intimidated. And I do want to just make a point that like there's not just one ancient history to engage with or one set of philosophies. Like I personally know a lot about the, cl- the classical world, but like my family's, you know, originally Norwegian. We grew up with Norse mythology. My mother studied Indo-Urdu in college, so we always got a lot of Indian mythology. And I lived in Mexico. I, I love like studying the Aztecs and going down the Incas. Like you don't need to pick one history or one time period, but the sheer act of engaging with history and philosophy is critical. It opens up a whole way of perspective of thinking about your modern issues. So the classical world of the Greco-Roman is more impactful on subsequent uh, medieval Renaissance and Enlightenment philosophies and literature, of course. So if if those are going to be the periods that you're most interested in, like you want to have a fundamental understanding of those. But just to say, like, it's the act of learning from the past and thinking about and engaging with great ideas that's fundamental. And I'll give a resource to some people who are, I don't know if you know this about me, Anya, but I used to host a podcast called Legends, Myths, and Whiskey years ago. And I would delve into these old forgotten folklore and folktale and mythology uh, that nobody see. It doesn't get popularized, right? We get the Norse mythology, we get the Greek mythology, and that is almost the extent to which we have any popularized myths. Maybe we get some of the Japanese stuff too in anime and, and other things, but we, we don't hear a lot about African mythology. We don't hear a lot about Carib Indian mythology. We don't hear a lot about Hopi mythology, right? But but those things exist. Those things are cataloged. And one of the places you can find them is sacred-texts.com. They have a huge library of like all the stuff that you know, is common and you can easily find to a bunch of stuff that is really uncommon, like like myths and legends from Taiwanese culture was, was one that I remember was really cool about how the dragon ate the sun and the moon and then they fought. Uh, I can't remember the exact story, but that's a great resource. Do you have resources? Anya, I imagine you must have a ton. Well, I mean, yes, there's everything online. To me, like what I love is we, we're kind of avid travelers. So um, I kind of like learning about different things whenever we're in the country. And the cool thing is, is that just local myths, you find like a lot of recurring themes and ideas. And recently we were in Georgia in the country and Armenia. And I was like, I was surprised by how many of like the really old myths in Georgia, like kind of had similar Greek themes and similar Viking themes. So, um, I mean, for me, it's just, just getting to know each country and culture as best you can. You, you mentioned it having a lot of themes. You've probably heard of Joseph Campbell and Hero with a Thousand Faces and how like it's the same hero story no matter what. The more you read mythology and folklore, the more you will realize that they are literally telling the same exact stories with a different cast of characters and with slight nuanced differences. And it really, one of the reasons I started that podcast was that I believed that a way to help people realize we're all the same is by entertaining them with stories from cultures that are different. Because if you can be entertained by another culture, it's hard to demonize it. You know, you can start to see yourself in it a bit. Uh, and I love the idea of being able to see ourselves in the ancient ancient literature and ancient wisdom. So I love what you're doing, Anya. And before I let you go, 
And just thank you a million times for being on the show and helping my listeners expand their brains beyond stoicism, because I'm, I'm not great at encouraging them to do that. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the talk that you're giving next month. And then I also want you to share how people can find that introductory course that you mentioned, because I think that would be something a lot of, if not all of my listeners would be interested in. Thank you again for having me uh, and giving me the opportunity to talk. Um, yes, Classical Wisdom, we have on our site there the uh, courses, um, and it's called the Essential Greeks courses. So you can also go to courses.classicalwisdom.com and you'll see our Essential Greeks course. We did a series of symposiums in the past as well with Neil Ferguson and um, Edith uh, Hamilton, all sorts of awesome speakers that uh, we'll, we'll post up there as well. But um, just to say quickly to your point about Stoicism, you know, I think Stoicism is awesome. Like, I, there's, there are a lot of times when I have found the knowledge of Stoicism just absolutely useful and practical and just exactly what I needed at that moment in my life. And I love the fact that it's become so popular and it's, I like to call it like the gateway drug into ancient philosophy. So I just think that sometimes the insights that we get from Stoicism, the realization that there are more insights like that out there is exciting and exhilarating. And, you know, actually, you mentioned we've got the Plato's Academy event for philosophy and children. I also have another event in March called Philosophy and Anxiety. And it's all about how anxiety has been treated by philosophy throughout the history, um, and we have uh, included a Galen expert as well, um, a woman who simultaneously did her uh, PhD in classics at Harvard while doing her MD in Harvard, so she's got an interesting insight, uh, and Samir Chopra as well as Michael Fontaine um, at Cornell. So it's going to be a really interesting way to look. We'll bring in Stoicism, but we'll also bring in Galen's insight from a medical perspective. We'll look at different philosophical traditions in the ancient world. Like, and anxiety is something we all deal with at some point in our life. The great thing about philosophy is if you study it when you need it, great. But also you need to study it before you need it because a lot of times you're going to be in a difficult situation. And if you've studied it beforehand, you're prepared, whether it's grief or trauma or, or good things too, like a high level of success. Having it beforehand is pretty critical. Yeah, I've said a number of times that it's not that Stoicism can solve trauma, but being familiar with Stoic ideas can act as a barrier if you can get it in place before trauma presents itself to you. It makes you a little bit more resilient. Even though resiliency is not the point of Stoicism, I don't want anybody to think I just went back on things I just spent a month convincing you wasn't the case, but it is definitely a side effect of practicing the philosophy and probably not just this one. No, well, certainly, certainly. And I think even just uh, engaging with the idea that people have had these same problems and struggles for thousands of years, uh, it's kind of reassuring. You don't want to say misery loves company, but uh, just to know that we, we're kind of all in this together, like none of us have, are going to be excused from dealing with something difficult in our lives. So the more resources and, and kind of support we have, the better. Well, her name is Anya Leonard. She's amazing. She runs classicalwisdom.com, and you should go check it out and subscribe to it right now. It's free to subscribe to, which is incredible given all the value that it provides. Check out some of the courses at courses.classicalwisdom.com. All of these links will be in today's show notes. And until next time, Prakaptan, take care. 